Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is all I know. Welcome back for this next conversation on all I know. Today, I am so excited to welcome Grace. Grace, thank you so much for being here. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy that you are too. What does the other person on the end of the earbuds need to know about who you are to make the most of the conversation that we're going to have? So first of all, uh, I'm a cancer survivor, which is kind of a misnomer because um, I actually still have cancer, but I'm surviving it. So I guess I am a cancer survivor. Uh, Additionally, I am a professional aerialist. And I am also a medical legal death investigator. So I work for a medical examiner's office. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, already in just those couple of things, I'm like, yes, let's talk about that. (laughs) What is your definition of success, Grace? My definition of success would be a deeply rooted peace in who you are, what you've accomplished in your life. On the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where do you plot your life? A few years ago, I was reading a book by Oscar Wilde. That book was called De Profundis, and it's a series of letters that he wrote to his lover while he was in jail, while he was jailed for being homosexual. Oscar Wilde was in jail? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that or remember that. Being gay, yeah. Um, I remember that there's this section of these letters that he wrote in which, you know, he said that the, the, the problem with deciding that you want to be this or you want to be that is once you have a destination, that's where you'll go. You know, I mean, it's kind of like when you're in a car accident, you have a tendency to go in the direction that you're looking. When I read that, the way that I took it was it was like, you know, if I could I could say to myself, I want to be an actress, you know, which is obviously what everybody wanted to be in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody Um, who knew what was up, that's what they wanted to be. Yeah. I mean, theater kids. What? Right. Am I right? Um, Yeah. Or, you know, I'm going to be a writer or I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. And I based my life philosophy around this concept that it's like, when I think about who and what I want to be in my life, I don't want to be a noun. I want to be an adjective. 
And so it's like, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be an actress. I don't want to be a medical legal death investigator. I don't want to be any of these nouns. I want to be adjectives. I want to be fascinating. I want to be fascinated. I want to be exciting. I want to be content. Deciding to be an adjective leaves more wiggle room for how that plays out in your life. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take this path in order to be this thing. You know, it's like you take whatever path you land on and aim towards being fascinating or being content or being um, satiated or what have you. I mean, you know, some people, their goal in life is to be comfortable. You know, it's cool, good for you, whatever that looks like. And so when I think of like ordinary or extraordinary, I've always, you know, I I always wanted to be fascinating. I love your answer to this question. Where do I think I fall on that spectrum? I Fascinating. Yeah, I try to be fascinating. Um, I try to do as much as I possibly can in my pursuit of laying down at the end of my life and saying I had a fascinating time. And so I guess that's my definition of, of success is being able to look at my life and just be thrilled that I had a really fascinating run on this planet. It's like my favorite answer ever. <laughs> well, the tricky bit is, is it's like fascinating doesn't necessarily mean good or bad because like a lot of bad shit has happened. That was still fascinating, but it was right. fun, you know? And so it's like, maybe I should have been more specific. Well, but the thing that I love about what you're saying is that it has so much depth and breadth. And there's not a lot of room for just like skimming through anything in life. If you're going to be fascinating, you're going to be in it. And from the looks of the little bit that I can see about your life, you are. Yes. You're in the thick of it. You're not skirting the edges on anything. No. And you know what? That's, that's gotten me in trouble, but it's also kind of like, oh, well, this is kind of what I was aiming for. So we kind of answered both questions about that spectrum for ordinary and extraordinary and success in that little piece of conversation. Yeah. Let's jump into... And maybe you'll go back to what you said when you were introducing yourself to us, or maybe it'll be three new things. Either way, I'm going to want to ask you a little bit more about some of the things that you said at the very beginning. But what would you say are three events, circumstances, themes, experiences that you've had that have most shaped who you are today? And then let's choose one to talk about more in depth. Well, I would definitely say that um, my cancer diagnosis and how all of that played out definitely shaped me over the course of my adult life quite a bit. And also um, just the way that I view life, you know, because as a medical legal death investigator, because I spend so much time looking at death, that has done a lot to shape the way that I view life, the way that I kind of go about it. Um, so th- that that's two, definitely. And I think kind of an offshoot of both of them was taking up aerial arts had a huge impact as well. Yeah, so I would, I would definitely stick with those first 
three answers to, you know, what has shaped you. But I mean, there's, there's tons more. And I mean, we, I might just wander into some other, (laughs) some other stories over the course of that, you know, describing those. Okay. That's perfect. So is it okay with you then if we tiptoe our way into a couple of these things, particularly your diagnosis and your work? Sounds like they have a relationship with each other because they both sort of confront the idea of death. Yeah. Yeah. So those two might be easier to talk about in relationship to each other. And then perhaps when we get to the other side of that, we can tap into your work with aerial arts. Yeah. (laughs) So, Grace, can you walk us through a little bit about your diagnosis, what kind of cancer you have? How old were you when you were diagnosed? How long have you been living with cancer? The way the way that the whole thing kind of rolled out and it's 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 taken a lot of therapy and a lot of reflection to kind of be able to absorb how all of this happened. I was I was raised in like a, a super super Christian household. And in a lot of ways I don't feel like I necessarily had much of a personality or much of an idea of who I was or what I wanted to do because so much of that so much of that aspect of my growth was suppressed by dogma. You know, I think in a lot of ways, you know, Christianity and evangelical Christianity they're so afraid of girls. They're afraid of women misbehaving. Um, They're afraid of, you know, girls having sex. They're afraid of girls, you know, doing the wrong thing. They're afraid of girls working. You know, they're afraid of of a lot. You know, it's like girls are something that needs to be managed and guided. And there's not a lot of self-exploration. It's kind of like this is how you be a girl. Yeah, yeah. And it was just it was very much my life more or less consisted of. Nobody cares how you feel. You just need to behave. You know, nobody cares who you are. We just want you to behave. As long as you're good. Yeah, yeah. Just be a good girl. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like I kind of was let loose on the world with in an adult body, but very much with a, a underdeveloped sense of self and an underdeveloped sense of the world. And... Part of that perspective was that, you know, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Mm-hmm. And also there's this sense of I am the hero of my story and therefore whatever I do and whoever I am is allowed. As much as, you know, I had this Christian upbringing, I didn't have a great sense of self, nor did I have a great sense of other people. You know, the goal was to behave yourself, get married, have kids, and live in domestic happiness for the rest of your life. And it was never really presented to me that another option was available. Can I ask a clarifying question really quick? Sure. I'm trying to track with, I think I understand what you're saying about this be a good girl script. That part is making sense to me. But you said something a second ago about being the hero of your own story. Can you bring those things together for me? I'm having a hard time reconciling this script with being a hero. As a Christian, you know, as a good girl, you're, you're basically taught that uh, you're God's chosen people. 
you know, which is ironic because that's actually the Jews. But, (laughs) um, you know, there's this attitude of because you are a good girl, because you're a Christian, that means that you're right. And that's how you're the hero is by being right. And in this prescribed right, not in a right that you find or explore or discover, but a right that's written for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, so, you know, you stay on this course and you're, you're right. It's not a narrative that really functions well in the real world. I feel like I'm getting off track here. That's okay. But you were talking about kind of coming into the adult world, basically with this really underdeveloped sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I did, I came into the adult world with a very underdeveloped sense of self, this sensation that my identity was wrapped up in this narrative that had been written for me about what my life was supposed to look like. So I would say that I kind of lived I wouldn't call it a delusional state, but just kind of a checked out state. Like I wasn't, I'm not sure how much I was really participating in my own life because it was like, uh, I think I'm going to do this. Okay. Well maybe now I'll do this. And I didn't really have any direction. I didn't, I just, I didn't have a lot of awareness of who I was, what I was capable of or what I wanted. Or maybe even the feeling of freedom to explore that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had a few, you know, catastrophic relationships, had a boyfriend, then I didn't have a boyfriend, then I had a fiance, then I didn't have a fiance. And around about the age of 32, of just kind of floating through life, I started having these really weird rashes on my face and they looked kind of like acne. You know, they were like these weird little bumps And it would show up and I would be super just upset about it because I got bumps on my face. It looks bad. And sometimes it would be so bad that it just, it looked like I had really bad acne, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and your skin, especially, you know, your skin, it's so, how you present your face to the world is so important for women. And so the fact that I had these bumps on my face. And, you know, I I had been a spoken word poet in the past and did this poem about how unrealistic beauty standards kind of, you know, ruin your life. And it's all fine and well to be, you know, railing against beauty when you're 26, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's another thing entirely when suddenly you have rashes all over your face and you're 32 and you look like shit. Well, and there's a difference too. I mean, when you talk about railing against beauty, it's like, There's such a difference to in accepting all of the ways that beauty can look, but with something that you're confronted with that makes you feel like, no, you can't argue that this is beautiful. This is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to reconcile that I imagine would be incredibly painful. Yeah. And you know, when this, when this started happening, I didn't have health insurance. Um, I was leaving my career as a paramedic And, you know, kind of shifting into figuring out what else to do with myself because I didn't like being a paramedic. It was awful. I'm working part time. I don't have health insurance. I'm starting to have these rashes on my face. And I spent so much time dashing from one doctor to another, from one provider to another, just begging somebody to please tell me what this is and how to make it go away. And 
nobody really could. You know, it's like I had people tell me that I had sensitivities to food. I had people tell me that it was some kind of uh, I was diagnosed, quote unquote, with atopic dermatitis, which when you actually look it up, atopic dermatitis is just a fancy way of saying your skin is fucked up and we don't know why. So oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful. Okay. Yeah. Um, and nobody really knew what it was or what to do with it. And so I'm spending all of this money that I don't have to go see doctors who are taking biopsies and like putting steroids on it and saying, well, you know, we don't really know. And it was a eye-opening experience, first of all, because when you're well, when you're well and you've always been well, you don't really know how to talk to somebody who's sick. Yes. And so for the first time, I was in this position of having people who cared about me saying really, really insensitive stuff. You know, it's like everyone was offering possible diagnoses and maybe you should try this and maybe you should try that. And it wasn't helpful. You know, it's like, if anything, it felt very dismissive that it was just sort of like, well, I know you've seen all of these doctors and this, that, and the other thing, but what's really going on is that you're probably just stressed. Thank you for taking this incredibly, you know, problematic and disfiguring thing that's happening to me. And acting as though it's easily solved by you tossing stress out and that, you know, if I would just sleep more, it would go away, you know? Right. If like, I could just not be wound up, my face would be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, first of all, there was that attitude of if this is happening to you, it's probably because of something you did or because of something that you are. And also it was just kind of the bottomlessness of that, undiagnosis, you know, the fact that it's just like, we don't know what's wrong with you and there's nothing more to say about it. And that sensation of, it's just like hanging over an abyss where it's just, you're, you're floating. There's nothing below you. There's nothing above you. There's no definition. There's no reason. There's no explanation and there's no end. <sighs> and that was difficult because it, it really, it really opened my eyes to the sheer random chance of the universe because I mean, my, my family, they approached it as, well, what did you do? Mm -hmm. You know, you must have done something wrong for this to be happening to you. And if it wasn't morally wrong, you know, I mean, I remember I, uh, you know, I, I started like getting Botox between my eyebrows, you know, in my early thirties, because I didn't like that hatchet mark there. And I remember my mom telling me that this was like a, a punishment from, you know, or, or that it was, it was the result of my vanity, you know, that it's like, this was happening to my face because I got Botox and I was having a reaction to it or something like that. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was fun. It's an incredibly isolating place to be. And when you're in that place, there's nothing to do but think. And there's nothing to do but think about, you know, why is this happening to me? And you start to think about, I guess, the, the lack of awareness with which you kind of lived your life beforehand. And I started to become 
very, very grateful, which is an odd thing to say, but I started to become really grateful for people that dealt with me mercifully. Hmm. It really opened my eyes to what it means to be empathetic to somebody and to be to be able to sit with somebody who's in pain and to be able to say the right thing, which is sometimes absolutely nothing at all. And it was, it was interesting to kind of look back at my own life and think about how much I had dismissed other people's pain because it's just sort of like, well, if you were a Christian, you'd be fine. You know, <laughs> it's like, mm. oh, that's, that's not the case after all. hello. Right. And this kind of idea that it's like, well, if people are in pain, they bring it on themselves. You know, if people are in pain, if they have problems, it's probably because of bad decisions that they made. And I I don't think I realized how much that was a part of my, my overall worldview until it was me. And then suddenly you're just like, wow. (laughs) that is a horrible way to view people. That's a horrible way to treat people. And you couldn't then, make sense of what was happening to you. It didn't yeah, make sense. It, it made no sense. There was no reason. There was no logic. There was no explanation. It was just, this is what your face is doing now. It was funny how the nihilism of that whole experience actually was more comforting than religion. You know, because the way I described it to my family when they were like talking to me about, you know, this, this thing is happening and I don't know why. In a lot of ways, it was easier to say that there is no reason, there is no logic, there is no purpose, there is no plan. Than it was to say, you know what, there is a God and God decided to do this for you. You know, God decided to do this to you. God wants you to learn something. So, you so know, what's your lesson? Yeah. So what's the lesson that God wants you to learn from this? And it was just, it was just like, fuck you. What if there is no lesson? What if sometimes things just suck? So the people who were, you said such a powerful word because you said there were some people who handled you or dealt with you mercifully. Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of doctors that, they didn't have to be helpful as much as they were. You know, it's like there were a few doctors um, who looked at me and they were just sort of like, I'm pretty sure that this is beyond my capabilities to help you, but I'm going to try. Because during that time, I had the experience of actually being fired by a couple of doctors who were just sort of like, I can't deal with this. You need to go somewhere else. Mm. And being fired by a doctor is just like, dude, I'm fucking paying you and you're telling me to get out. Well, and I need you to help me. And that's your job. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your job as a doctor is to figure out what's going on with me and help me be well. Yeah. yeah. Help me get better. And so, I mean, what, what happened is like for five years, I was misdiagnosed for five years. I Starting had- at 32. Yeah. So uh, until you were 37, you were on this nightmare roller coaster of what's going on with my face. Yeah. And kind of being in this weird sort of ritual of trying this diet, trying that medication, trying this topical, trying that soap. And in this, this bizarre experiment, this ongoing experiment to see what made it better, what made it worse. I found a doctor in my home state where I am now who he basically, he put me on prednisone. 
He put me on prednisone every day for like three years. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not supposed to be on prednisone for that long. And he was, he was doing his level best and it wasn't a high prednisone dose. It was like uh, between five to 10 milligrams a day, which, you know, I mean, most people, when they have like some massive inflammatory process, they get given like 60 to a hundred milligrams of prednisone. Mm -hmm. And so it's a tiny dose, but still daily for three years. Yeah, it's it's a tiny dose, but still prednisone is a great drug in that it handles inflammation. It decreases inflammation, but it doesn't actually address what's causing it. So whatever the underlying disease process was, we still didn't know. But as long as I didn't have rashes on my face, everybody was satisfied, including me. You know, it's just sort of like, I don't have a rash on my face. I'm good. Yeah, it's, I'm better. It's better. Yeah. So as I, you know, this is, this is roughly about, you know, I became a medical legal death investigator at the age of 34 and really started delving into pathophysiology and understanding more about how the medical system works and how your body works and things like that. And so by the time I hit 37 and I was still on prednisone, I was aware enough to be able to say, this is not good for me. It was my decision to be able to say, this is not good for me. My doctor wasn't like, we need to get you off prednisone because it's not good for you. I was the one that had to come to the realization that this was going to be a problem if it kept going this way. Right. And, and self-advocate. And that's, that's the thing is it's like, we don't really have a ton of background and especially, you know, Christian woman do as you're told. I didn't have a ton of background in self-advocating making decisions regarding what was best for me. And I'm thankful that, you know, I had this job and that I had had enough experience talking to doctors to recognize that they don't always know what they're doing, you know, and they're busy, they're overworked. They don't have a ton of time to dedicate to it. And so, yeah, you know, taking care of the symptoms seemed like a reasonable course of action. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to my doctor and I was like, look, I want to be tested for all of these problems that I know prednisone causes. And so we um, did a bone density scan and I was hovering at the edge of osteopenia because the prednisone was starting to eat away at my bone density. Oh my gosh. At yeah. 37. Yeah. And it also does a number on your kidneys and your pancreas. And so I was also pre-diabetic. And I basically said to the doctor, I'm like, we have to come up with something else. You know, we have to come up with a different way of treating this because the treatment is arguably going to cause more problems in the long run than the disease itself, whatever it is. And so he's like, okay. So we made the decision to take me off all the prednisone and wait two weeks. And that had to have been a wicked process. It was, yeah. Uh, I wait can't even... <laughs> wait two weeks, we'll do a biopsy. At that time, you know, we'll, we'll send the biopsy off to Northwestern University to, you know, some, some skin specialists and see what we get. You know, we're just- and so the biopsy was going to be of your face? Yeah, it was like, okay. we're going to do a biopsy. We're, we're just going to take off the prednisone, let the disease do whatever it wants to do. And when it is in its zenith, we'll take a biopsy and see what we're dealing with. And so when I went off the prednisone, my, my disease process flared so badly that I looked like I had smallpox. Oh my gosh. And it itched. 
it itched so bad. And the way I described it was it itched like Satan was laughing at me. Oh. It was like, and the thing is, is like, because my face was so swollen, I couldn't actually reach the nerves to scratch them. Mm-hmm. And so I would sit there just hitting myself in the face, trying to scratch at those nerve endings that were buried beneath my skin and all the inflammation. Um, it's torture, Grace. It's torture. It wasn't fun. But more importantly, and part of what was going on at this time is I was working my job as a medical legal death investigator, which was, you know, pretty traumatic because it's like I'm dealing with death every day, but I'm also dealing with this disease process. You know, I'm going on suicides and homicides and accidents and, you know, these tragic deaths, but I'm also dealing with my own disease process. And I had also gotten married. Um, I had gotten married to a friend of mine who I had known for 14 years. We'd been friends for a long time. And when I look back at the decision to start dating him, I recognize that, you know, this was at the end of my paramedic career, which was really difficult because I I had a lot of identity tied up in that. Um, It was at the beginning of my disease process. And so I felt very alone. And I had also just um, broken off an engagement with somebody else. And so a lot of really bad things were happening when he and I got together. And he was a very comforting presence. And I'd known him for such a long time that I was like, this is a safe bet. This is somebody who I know who is going to care for me and help me navigate this. He'll be with me. He's not going to leave. Yeah. And... The difficulty with that was that um, you can be friends with someone for 14 years and still not know them. Mm. And I did not know who he was in a relationship. And who he was in a relationship was very indifferent and dismissive and uninterested. And he didn't really show up for this whole process. He was not supportive. Uh, He didn't really ask questions. He didn't really go with me to doctor's appointments. He didn't, um, he didn't really participate. You know, he, he sat at his computer and played world of Warcraft. Yeah. So you're in this relationship with someone who has been a friend for a really long time. Like you said, Mm -hmm. it's okay to take this relationship to another level because we obviously have 14 years with each other. Yeah. And it's going to be good. He's going to be comforting to me and then ends up kind of leaving you alone. With yeah, your he, he checked out. He really checked out. And I've done enough therapy now to kind of understand his family of origin and how that's, you know, affected the way that he dealt with uncomfortable situations was to check out. But in the moment, that was exactly what I didn't need. And so, yeah, it's like I would be in the bedroom slapping myself in the face and crying because I itched so much. And he would come into the bedroom and yell at me for making so much noise. Oh. And, you know, I'm here in this. I, we had moved to a new state. I didn't know a ton of people. And it was really, really horrible. It was isolating. It was terrifying. You know, I had something was wrong with me. We didn't know what. I'm working this job that is really difficult and really complicated and... I'm encountering a lot of really horrible scenes and 
So I guess this is where the third part of this comes in. That being that I was like, I need friends. You know, I need people. I need something to do. I need somewhere to go. I need someone to fucking talk to. Mm -hmm. And so I started going to like these goth nights in the town that I had just moved into, which is ridiculous because goth people are not exactly known for me. Come sit with us, you know. It's like that's not a thing. Um, but I was going to these goth nights, and I'm just like standing there, like wondering how do I strike up a conversation because like a bunch of my friends back home had been goth, and I'm like, okay, I know goth people, I can do goth, right on. And I'm going to these goth nights, and I'm just like, what? What am I even doing here? And then one night, this random dude, I'm standing there, like at the bar, I'm like nursing a drink, I'm all alone, I'm not talking to anybody, and I'm just like, I, I hate my life. And this random guy who was like five foot one and skinny as a rail comes up and just starts talking to me. And he was, he was nice. He was so nice. He was so friendly and he just strikes up this conversation with me. And I did not get the, I'm hitting on you vibe from him at all. Although he might've been, I don't know, but he started talking about how he was taking aerial classes. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, well, it's, you know, you hang from the ceiling on silks or, um, on Lyra, that big, you know, hoop that hangs from the ceiling. And it's super fun. Circus arts are super fun. I grew up and I ran away with the circus. You should take circus classes too. And, I'm like, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I should. I'm like, fucking sold, man. <laughs> you're the nicest person I have met, including my goddamn husband. So whatever you're doing, I'm doing it. Fantastic. And 48 hours later, I was in my first aerial class at the school that he referred me to. And it was, it was a life-changing experience because, um, I don't know if your listeners are going to know this, but, uh, Jen and I knew each other in high school Mm -hmm. and I was, you know, a (laughs) miserable little theater kid that had lots of issues and I had never really been encouraged to pursue any sort of physical activity you know, other than to stay thin, (laughs) you know, it's just like, okay, I guess I'll, you know, run a lot or something. And so suddenly being in this environment, in this place, uh, I take it back. I had done some uh, martial arts classes, which was great because it got me moving, but it's one thing to like learn how to um, defend yourself. And it's another thing entirely to do circus arts because it's like, that is training. It is no joke. I have taken one aerial class and I was so excited about it because I thought it was going to be magical and I was going to feel like I was flying. And what I found out about myself is that I'm really uncoordinated and not nearly as strong as I need to be to do aerial silks. And, um, yeah, (laughs) it is hard and it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It actually really hurts. Your body is like constricted and squeezed by these apparatus from the ceiling and gravity is pulling you down. Yep. It hurts. So you kind of want it to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at that time in that place in my life, I was just like, I need to do something, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I need to do anything. And so I started taking these aerial arts classes And the meditative aspect of, you know, just engaging in your body and being in your body and 
making it move and learning how to get your body to do what you want it to do. And being in a place where I felt like my body was turning on me Mm -hmm. and having an opportunity to kind of feel like I had some agency with my body was a huge, huge relief. And also um, I had never really been friends with women before in my life. All of my friends, you know, like throughout most of high school and uh, definitely throughout my 20s and 30s, all my friends were dudes. In and some ways, men are so much easier to be friends with. Yeah, yeah. Um, in some ways, it's true. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is, I get to my late 30s and early 40s, and suddenly I'm introduced to this world of women. And suddenly my life was populated with women, women who were funny and interesting and strong and supportive. And um, the Ariel school itself was owned by uh, a lesbian couple and they were great. And a lot of the other people that were in the classes were exotic dancers and they were great. And especially as somebody who came from such a Christian background, the idea that it was just like, I'm being introduced to, these LGBTQ people or these people who are involved in, you know, sex work and they're wonderful. They are wonderful. They're fucking wonderful. And so going back after those two weeks, finally, my doctor, we did the biopsy and we sent it off to Northwestern university. And, you know, I'd been doing Ariel, you know, I'd been doing my job and still married. This is probably like around what is this about 37 yeah 37 38 okay 37 38 is still in this kind of empty relationship where you don't have the support that you thought you were going to have yeah and this is where the biopsy comes back and i still remember i'll remember it till the day i die i was walking through whole foods when my phone rang and it was the dermatologist my doctor telling me you've got cancer. Uh, Specifically, you've got cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. I have Uh, never heard of that even. It's a skin cancer. It's a a T-cell lymphoma, which is a lymphoma that lives in your skin. And specifically, it's uh, follicular tropic mycosis fungoides. What the hell? Yeah. (laughs) I hardly know how to describe it. Basically, the T-cells in your skin are going bonkers, Um, and it results in these rashes. It results in uh, nodules, like uh, tumor-like nodules and stuff like that, and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is not super rare. Follicular tropic mycosis fungoides, that subcategory of T-cell lymphoma is actually pretty rare. What's the difference? Like, what, what does that subset mean? Follicular tropic means that it specifically targets your hair follicles. And mycosis fungoides is it's an aggressive cancer. I'd have to like look it up to be able to give a definite, a, a, a solid response that you're looking for. But it's like a broad spectrum cancer. You know, because it's like most cancers you think of, you have a tumor. You know, it's like you've got a lump in your breast. You have a tumor in your brain, you know, or you've got a mole on your skin. And this is like this broad spectrum 
cancer that covers an extended area. Well, and your skin is your largest organ. So if this cancer, you know, lives in the skin and takes over the skin cells, I mean, did you, were you dealing with the risk of it moving from your face to the other parts of your body? Yeah, and it did a little bit. For for whatever reason, this subset of mycosis fungoides tends to target your face and your neck. And uh, sometimes it can also target your scalp. My doctor told me that most people who have it are in their 70s. Oh my gosh. So you are 37 or 38 years old in yeah. Whole Foods after five years of chasing the rash on your face Three years of prednisone coming off of that culminated in two weeks of basically abusing yourself to try and deal with the itch. You're in Whole Foods and your doctor's like, Grace, it's cancer. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do? He's like, you need to see an oncologist. And so he referred me to a radiation oncologist and they were just sort of like, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to do radiation therapy for this. The problem is this cancer is unusual in that it's never gone. I still have it. I'll have it till I die. It never goes into remission. And the way that I describe it to people is it's kind of like herpes, which mm. is a, a fantastic you know comparison. But it's like when, when somebody has herpes, they never don't have herpes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's there and it's just a matter of whether or not it is currently visibly present on your skin. Right. The virus is there or the disease is there. It's just, is it flaring? Yeah. Yeah. And so they basically said that it's like, look, we can treat it with radiation therapy. Not enough people have this cancer for us to be able to know what it's going to do or how well this treatment is going to work. Oh, but, so awesome. After this period of time, now you're also an experiment. Yeah, yeah. And now it's just like, oh, well, we're going to we're gonna throw radiation at it and we hope that'll help. We'll see what happens, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? I'm like, I don't fucking know. Hi, friends. It's Jen, and I'm jumping in to push pause on the conversation with Grace. We will pick up with the next part of her story next week. So be sure to check your app or streaming service for the next installment of Grace's story. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, Please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. 
All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. And our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma. And we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. And I give that to you one more time. All I know at inwardboundco.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can. <laughs>